Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 47 through 62 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read that section. Beginning in verse 47. It says, While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You're also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Verse 59, an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the words that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this moment where you suffered, where you were betrayed, where you were denied, um, I ask, Lord, that by your Spirit we would be able to relate to all these characters. Lord, we'd be able to identify with what your Spirit is saying to the church, that your name would be glorified, that you'd be honored, Lord, that our hearts would be laid bare before you, that we wouldn't um, be hypocritical Christians, Lord, but we'd be authentically following you with all of our hearts, Lord, our minds, soul, and strength, Lord. We'd be empowered by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear this morning, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week, we finished with Jesus and his disciples. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus took Peter, he took James, and he took John into that garden a little further and ask them to watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. And instead of praying, we learn that Peter, James, and John slept because of sorrow. Any of you sleep instead of pray, or is it just me? Anybody else? And Peter would go on to deny him three times, and they would all leave them. And that's probably the reason why they're overwhelmed with sorrow, because Jesus had just relayed the hours earlier that he would be betrayed by Judas that they would, all, they would all leave him, that Peter himself would deny Jesus three times, and in addition to that, um, that he was going to be killed. 
This was heavy-duty stuff, and they were deep, uh, deeply sorrowful as, as they were coming to the realization of all this. And while they were sleeping in the garden, a stone's throw further, Jesus is agonizing in prayer about the cup uh, of wrath that he was about to drink. That Jesus, although he was totally sinless, spotless and without blemish, he would be treated by the Father as if he had committed every single sin from, from the beginning of time on behalf of those who would believe on him in faith. And Jesus prayed in agony in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup for me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And so in the garden, we see Jesus agonizing through his sorrow. Um, he prayed, resolving to do the Father's will. And conversely, the other way, we see the disciples full of sorrow, and their sorrow led to prayerlessness, and their sorrow led to sleep and inaction. And so there's a, total, uh, there's a total contrast that's happening here. The victorious nature of our Lord overcoming temptation and then the total absolute collapse and failure of the disciples to, uh, you know, of inaction and prayerlessness. Can anybody relate this morning? Anybody? Yes. And it says in the other gospel accounts that as he was agonizing, he got up three times to go check on the other disciples, and he found them sleeping because of their sorrow. And as Jesus comes to them the third time, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus said to them in verse 41 of chapter 14, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. If you notice, um, Luke's gospel is going to condense the, the facts. I'm going to fill in a lot of the blanks as I'm going to be grabbing from the other gospels, the synoptic gospels and, and, and in John, just to kind of fill out the, uh, the details here because there's a lot going on that night. But he says to them, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And it is, this is where we pick up in, chap, in Luke chapter 22, verse 47 today, where it says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you about to betray, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So Judas had been with Jesus from the beginning. He had been one of the 12 disciples. He had ministered with Jesus close to three years. He was in charge of the money. If you remember that Jesus chose Judas, Judas did not choose him. Very interesting. In John 6, just after many of Jesus' other disciples, they heard a teaching that Jesus gave about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. They just said, man, this is a difficult teaching. And many of the disciples decided not to follow Jesus anymore, and they left him. They departed. That's John 6, 66. And in verse 67, Jesus speaks about the 12, says, do you want to leave me too? Do you want to leave me too? Jesus asked the 12, and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So he's making this confession. And then Jesus replies to Peter, have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Wow. 
And he meant, it says, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was the one who would betray him. And that came very apparent just hours earlier from his arrest. At that last supper, if you remember earlier that evening, Jesus knew that it was Judas who would betray him as he gave him that piece of bread dipped in the, you know, the sop or whatever it is they, they put, and he hands it to him. He says, hey, whoever I am give this to, this is the one who's going to betray me. He hands it to him and to let Judas know that he knew what was going on. You weren't fooling Jesus. He knew exactly what was going on. In John's account in chapter 13, Jesus then says that, uh, tells us that Satan entered into Judas for the second time, by the way, into Judas at that last supper. So did you know Satan was at the last supper? That's very interesting. And Jesus said in verse 27, what you are about to do, do it quickly. Jesus was totally aware what was about to happen and that Judas, his chosen disciple, would betray him. And Judas, possessed by Satan, under the command of Jesus, basically, that he was allowed to go do what he was about to do, said, what you're about to do, go do it quickly. Jesus even tells him to hurry up. And Judas, possessed by Satan, he left the Last Supper early. He went to the religious leaders, knowing that it was night And they would gather together the various characters that would make up that crowd led by Judas going to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And those characters in that group are a bunch of political and uh, military people, the chief priests who ran the temple, the officers of the temple, which were the temple police force. They'd be the arresting personnel, so to speak. The members of the ruling council, which is the Sanhedrin, which consisted of the elders and Pharisees and all these other people. And then you had the scribes and you had a detachment of Roman soldiers. And so there's a big crowd coming to get Jesus, basically uh, representing the Gentiles and the Jews. They're all coming to come grab and snatch Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. So when Jesus told Judas to go quickly, it was because there was a lot of people to gather and the time frame was God's time frame. And it was amazing to me that even in his betrayal, Jesus is in control. He knows what is going to happen. He knows what's going on according to the will of the Father. And so Judas, he leads this crowd consisting of all these people having found the opportune time. They were looking for that opportune time, the time where it was dark, the time when the crowds wouldn't be watching. And they went to the place where Jesus and his disciples were, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark's account tells us how Judas was going to identify Jesus. Mark 14, tells us that Jesus would identify who Jesus was through a kiss on the cheek. That's normally reserved for a friend. That's normally reserved as, you know, a greeting in, in Middle East is, hello, you know, how you doing type of thing, and you're my friend, I have affection towards you, close friendship. And this should tell us something also about Jesus. Uh, you couldn't pick him out of a crowd. How many of us have, like, if Jesus were walking a crowd, he'd be three feet taller than everybody else. He'd be glowing. He's got his Euro beard going on. You know what I mean? He's got his blue eyes. He's just... 
and he's just floating through. That's him. That's Jesus. That's not Jesus. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish guy. And the fact is, he wasn't, you know, probably all chiseled and all that stuff that everybody talks about. He was, he was a man. He was an ordinary man. Actually, if you, the reason why we know this is Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah. It says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Is that a far cry from what we attempt to do in Christianity? Appealing to the flesh, raising up people who are polished and got it all together and who can be marketable and all this type of stuff. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus was. His beauty was from within. We suffer from the opposite in our culture. We appeal to the outside when what God desires is to draw us in our hearts and to change us from the inside out. Have you ever met someone who's been born again? They've had a horrible, uh, rebellious life and all of a sudden Christ comes in their life and they're a beautiful person inside. And although the outside might be ravaged or whatever it might be and you look at who this person is and you go, man, what is it about you? It's Jesus. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They've been changed. But the world would just pass over them and go, no, we want a King Saul, not a King David, so to speak. You know what I mean? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing that in his appearance that we should desire him. And so Judas had worked out this signal. How are we going to know who it is? Now, I'm sure some of them knew, but how are we collectively going to know who it is? With a kiss. And as Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, Jesus responds in verse 48, Judas Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? A kiss comes from affection. We know this. Jesus was committing betrayal. It was the ultimate betrayal sealed with the most fitting, hypocritical gesture imaginable, a kiss. The exact opposite of what was truly going on. Verse 49, and when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. That's Malchus. Um, was the, John identifies that high priest servant as Malchus. He cuts, off, uh, you know, he cuts off this guy's right ear. But Jesus answers, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. What a scene. Jesus did not need Peter's protection or intervention. And by the way, yes, it's Peter. John rats him out in his gospel. <laughs> he always does that. It's pretty funny. Yeah, that was Peter. Yeah, that was Peter. They were close friends. <laughs> it happens, you know. <laughs> now, when the crowd arrived, you got to know this. Peter, Jesus did not need Peter's help or his intervention. He didn't. When the crowd arrived, John's gospel in chapter 18 tells us that Jesus went out to meet them, asking who they were seeking. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responded by saying, I am he. 
That's, what, that's how he responded. And when Jesus said, I am he, it says they all drew back and fell to the ground. I am is how God chose to reveal himself to the Hebrews back when they were being delivered out of slavery. Moses came to... Um, Moses came, was talking to the Lord and said, hey, you want me to go talk to the Hebrews, but the elders are going to ask, who's sending you? And the Lord said, tell them I am that I am sent you, the eternal one. And so that's God's name, ego ami here in the Greek. And Jesus asks, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus utters the divine name, I am. And they all fell to the ground. Jesus doesn't need Peter's help. He talks and they all fall down. I mean, I don't even, could you imagine that? He just says, and there's like, boom. He's like, okay, I just released a little bit of energy or whatever it was, you know. But I say all this to say that Peter had no clue what was really going on. Jesus tells Peter and the boys here in 50, 50, verse 51, he says, no more of this. Knock it off, right? Matthew's account in chapter 26 tells us that Jesus says to Peter in verse 52 to 54, he says, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. My kingdom isn't going to come basically through that kind of sword. Amen. That's how the world works. That's how these kingdoms work. That's not how I work. They work through swords. I work through a different kind of sword. He goes on and says, Do you think I cannot call my father? And he will at once put an army, basically a disposal of 12 legions of angels at my disposal, you know? But how then, Jesus says, will the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way. Jesus was all about the Scriptures being fulfilled, the Father's will, and Peter was blind to this at that moment. And just like Peter, church, when we fail to pray, when we fail to seek the Lord in difficult times, and even before they get there, when we let our emotions, whether it be sorrow or weariness or whatever, keep us from watching and from praying and seeking His will, we are going to end up using the wrong sword. We are going to end up trying to accomplish God's will through the means of our flesh instead of the Spirit. Can anyone relate this morning? For Peter was seeking to defend and protect Jesus through violence. And Peter didn't understand that Jesus was totally in control. He was the Son of God. Jesus could call on those le- that legions of angels, 12 legions. I don't even know what that number is. It's a lot of angels. Much better than Peter's sword. But this is why Jesus told Peter to watch and pray lest he enter temptation. He went out and he chopped someone's ear, to- ear off. If he had prayed, if he had listened, I believe the Lord would have given him wisdom and the restraint in that hour. And he didn't. And Jesus has to say to him, enough. 
And then Jesus has to literally pick up the pieces of the mess that he created and put them back together. Amen? (laughs) As he puts the ear back on Malchus. And by the way, what about that guy? I mean, you're sitting here coming to arrest Jesus. You get your ear chopped off. He pops it back on. You're like, what do I do now? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's got to mess your world up. You know, your second in charge there. You know, I don't know. It's just... And then Jesus says to the chief priests, the officers, verse 52, of the temple guard and the elders who had come from him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus was pointing out their evil, hypocritical hearts If what they were doing was right, if it was righteous, if it was good, why wasn't it done in the daylight? And that's his point. If it was justified, it should have been done in plain view of everyone. But it was not. It was done out of the public eye, in the dark. And Jesus calls them on it and says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. It is at this point that the disciples deserted Jesus. They deserted Jesus according to Mark's gospel in chapter 1450. They all fled. And verse 54 happens. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. As soon as Jesus is arrested, he is dragged into... Annas' house, the high priest, and this is the beginning of the trials that are going to go on through the night. Basically, there are six trials. There are six trials, three Jewish, three Gentiles, if, if you divide them up like that. Most of them are accomplished at night, you know, three of them by the Jews, three of them by the Romans, and it culminates with, with before Pilate in front of the crowds in the early morning where everybody is riled and they're screaming, crucify him, and Jesus is taken away. We'll get to those next week. But there are a lot of things that must happen in order for Jesus to be convicted and condemned to death. And it began by bringing charges that would stick. And this started at the high priest's house. That's where it had to start under Jewish law. And we're going to get to those next week. But interspersed between those trials is is Peter's denial of Christ. And that's what the subplot of Luke is. He's focusing on these things as It says here that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. And so apparently, after the disciples fled, both Peter and John, they both came back into the city. They snuck back into the city. We know this from John's account in here. And they were following what was happening with Christ. John had known someone in the high priest's house, and Peter just, I don't know, he's probably following John. Who knows? But verse 55. Peter's there, following Jesus at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. And she looked at him closely. And you can see it's dark. There's a fire. His face is being lit up by the flames. And she's just inspecting. She's got an idea. She knows who this is. And then she said, this man was with him. Verse 57, but he denied it. Woman, I do not know him, he said. 
And this was Peter's first denial of three of Jesus. Earlier that evening when Jesus said to Peter he was going to deny him three times before the rooster crows, Peter said, no way, I am willing to go to prison and to death. That was Peter's, you know, that was his vision for the night. You know, that was his goal. (laughs) I'm going to be committed to you no matter what happens, Lord. Now, how in the world did Peter get from there to here? How did Peter go from that total confidence to collapse? Because that's where he's headed. How many of us have made great boasts to God? This week, anyone? God, I'm going to go to church regularly. God, I'm going to do such and such. I'm going to witness to this person. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to be in the Word. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Anybody else? About all the things you're going to do for God in His, you know? I'm ready to go to prison and to death, Lord. (laughs) How did Peter crash and burn? I think there's a simple formula. It's just two things. It's two things. There's a lot we could do here, but I want to make it pretty simple. Peter would not hear what Jesus said, and Peter would not do what Jesus said. I just think it's as simple as that. He would not hear when Jesus was speaking, and he would not do it when Jesus told him to do something. Those two things just made Peter collapse as a follower of Jesus. When Jesus said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Instead of hearing what Jesus is saying, instead of saying, okay, Lord, what do I do? He cuts the Lord off and he tells him, no, Lord, basically, your assessment of me is wrong. I am so passionately a follower of you that I will do this. This is going to happen. I'm going to follow you to prison. I'm going to follow you to death. Jesus, you're wrong. He was unwilling to listen when the Lord spoke. Do you approach the word of God with humility? Do we? Do you listen to what God is saying with ears to hear what the Spirit would say? Or when something comes up, say I'm preaching or you're reading the word or you're hearing something, the Lord immediately pricks your conscience. You turn around and go, no, that's not for me. Because, and then you proceed to tell a lie or whatever deceit it is in your, in your heart and your mind about your own circumstance. See, the Lord knows you better than you know you. The word of God is It cuts between the joints and the marrow, basically, of our soul. It's a precision instrument. It gets where we don't have understanding. It cuts it open and shows us and reveals the inner workings of our being. And when that happens, it is important that the people of God let the Word of God do its work. The Holy Spirit comes in and starts to reveal, and we start to go, Yes, Lord, your Word is true. I'm deceived. Peter wouldn't do that. He wasn't listening. He was saying, I'm going to go to prison and to death. Secondly, Peter would not do what Jesus simply said to do. Disobedience. 
Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Remember? Instead, Peter fell asleep. Do we, like Peter, hear what Jesus says and don't do it? Anyone else besides me? Great. I think this really does happen to us all for various reasons. For Peter, it was because of sorrow. He gave place to his emotions over obedience. How many of you give place to your emotions over obedience? Anyone? And what are those emotions? You know, they can be far-ranging. You know, love for something else. Fear. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm fried. That's the, way I, that's the phrase I use around my house. Those are my reasons for not doing what the Lord has commanded me to do. Anybody else? And so I think, really, it's that simple. To hear the word of the Lord, yes, and to, through prayer, just simply obey Him. Lord, I hear what you're saying. There's an inability for me to do it in my own strength. I'm going to pray. And when you pray, God strengthens you to actually do what He's called you to do. And you just step out in obedience and do it, regardless of how you feel. Amen. When we fail to simply hear and obey, when we fail to do that, like Peter, we end up following Jesus at a distance, warming our hands by the enemy's fire, and we live nominal, compromised Christian lives. We say we're going to go witness, but when it comes down to it, what happens, church? We Luke twenty two fifty seven. it. Woman, I don't know him. Verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. That's not kind of like a hippie man. Peter's actually, he's going downhill fast. Just a few hours earlier, he had those great boasts, but now he's flat out denying Christ. And Matthew's account tells us that this second denial, he gives a little bit more of the context there, was made with an oath. Matthew 26, 72, the second denial, he says, he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And so it's gone from I don't know him to I swear I don't know him. That's where Peter's going. And then verse 59, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter's speech betrayed him. He was from the north. He had a northern accent. And they all knew that Jesus' followers were northerners. Peter could no longer be that secret agent Christian. And verse 60 says, Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Luke is very kind in what he says. Matthew, a little bit more detailed. Matthew 26, 74 fills in the gaps and says this third denial. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. So he went from denying Christ to swearing he didn't deny Christ to actually calling down curses in absolute 
speaking so contrarily of Christ that they would identify him with the world. I've been there. You know, I think, especially really younger in my faith, it's more subtle and refined now. But um, when when the Lord gets a hold of your heart and you're coming out of the world, sometimes you you don't know how to engage it. You know what I'm saying? And and you're following Christ, but then you realize there's a cross. A denial of self. There's a, there's a time when you need to obey Jesus and it's going to hurt you to identify with Jesus. It's not just Christian music and church and potlucks and stuff. There's a cross involved where you deny yourself and it hurts and your relationships are torn and, and things come in to where Jesus brings the sword into a family or in a circumstance or in a job or whatever it might be. And to identify with Christ is to identify with Christ, not the world. And it's sometimes a slow descent into compromise that we get into. Anybody else have that? It's subtle over a period of time. It was over a period of hours this happened to Peter, but for us it can be over a period of days. And here Peter's totally went from boasting of prison and death to denying and cursing Christ. I'm so thankful this is in here. Aren't you glad the Word of God just lays it bare? Not for me, but for Peter. You know, <laughs> aren't you glad? So we can look at this and go, oh, I can relate to this. Thank you, Lord. That this guy that you decided to be one of the leaders in the church, you know, you look at him. Wow, you do amazing work in people. That means you can do amazing work in me. Praise the Lord. So Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. Calling down curses. And here's the kicker, verse 16. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter was crushed. He'd fallen into temptation. He was face to face with the truth about himself and the weakness of his sinful nature. Everything Jesus said would happen happened, and Peter felt the weight of it. He was broken with his own total depravity. His inability to overcome his sinfulness, even by his own passion and pulling it up by the bootstraps and all these things that he, he did. He was undone, just broken. You know what? I, it's funny, I was, I was going, oh, man, I hate ending on such a downer. You know, it's like, <laughs> but this whole thing is really, you know, it's difficult. But I, I think there's just, and I'm not, I'm not reaching for something good. It's here. This is the pivotal point of Peter's change in his life. This is where he was crushed and undone and where Peter came to the realization of how totally unreliable he was. 
I can't count on even my own affections for God. I'm unable to do what I know God would have me to do. I can't do it. I'm totally broken. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the next thing he says is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And there's a progression there. That when we, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our total, absolute just brokenness before God, our inability to do something, there's a mourning that happens on a soul level. And it is at that place where God can come in and begin to work in heart. Peter became poor in spirit here, and he mourned over his sin. That's what he's doing. And Paul speaks of this godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. It brings change. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. The world mourns because they get caught. Those who are Christ mourn because it's contrary to Him and it breaks us. How I long to, to be what you've called me to be, Lord Jesus, and I just see my total inadequacy of my ability to do anything. And this is where we begin to substitute the work of God for plastic Christianity. We either let the Spirit do His work and break us at our core, or we begin to say, I'm okay. I've got it. And we begin to play church. Instead of letting that conviction, that failure, church, that place where you can't fix it, let the Holy Spirit come in and begin to comfort you and to restore you and to build you up. Amen? Peter was experiencing godly sorrow, sorrow that led to God changing him at his core to where he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the will of God. And I'm not just pretending. In just 50 days, about 50 days, the Holy Spirit would fall upon Peter who was gathered with the disciples praying in the upper room. And Peter would then stand in front of that same group that he denied Christ in front of all of them. And he would begin to testify of the risen Lord. And thousands came to the Lord. And he would be imprisoned. And he would eventually be crucified upside down according to church tradition. Because Christ empowered him, it wasn't his passion or his drive that was the successful thing. It was humility. It was being broken and just saying, Lord, empower me to do, and I can't trust myself. And when you say pray, I'm going to pray. When you speak, I'm going to listen. I'm just going to walk in obedience. And as you walk in obedience, the Lord empowers you to do His will, and where He leads you will bring Him glory. That's the, that's the glory of the church. 
is he takes broken people and does amazing things through that brokenness. So brothers and sisters, you don't need to follow Christ at a distance anymore. If you've failed in your walk with the Lord, if you've blown it this morning, let the Holy Spirit come in and crush you. Let Him cut that thing out. Let Him speak to it, confess it, bring it to the light, weep bitterly, whatever you got to do, and let the Holy Spirit come in and change you from the core of your being. And today forward, you will be a different woman, you'll be a different man, empowered by the Holy Spirit in great humility. And God will then take you and use you as He sees fit for His glory. And so you don't need to follow Christ at a distance anymore. Take heart. Jesus restored Peter. He will restore you. Amen. He will empower Peter. He will empower you. Amen. So we must humble ourselves today. We must mourn over our sinfulness and our failures before the Lord and then allow His Holy Spirit to comfort you and to change you as you are face to face with the truth and say, yes, Lord, what you say is true about me. And then simply just pray and obey. Amen? Just pray and obey. And you walk closely with Jesus, even in the sufferings. Amen? Church, God will empower you. And like Peter, you will be his witness this week. Amen? Lord God, we just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for what you've shown us here about our own hearts through your servant Peter, Lord. How, God, you've taken a fisherman who was a passionate man, yet passionately wrong in so many ways. And you took him through a process to where he would be humbled and broken so that he would be raised up and not use the sword of the flesh, but would learn to use the sword of the Spirit. God, may we pick up the right sword today. Help us, Lord, to see the inner workings of our heart as your word is taught, as your word is laid before your people, as, as the body of Christ is edifying and convict, convincing and rebuking and encouraging one another, all those things. And I pray this morning for the soul that has got that burden of failure in their life. I ask right now, just by your Holy Spirit, you would come in and you would, like Peter, just break and let that sorrow flow. And from that sorrow would come life. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, who died and bled for us to redeem us from our sinfulness and from the wrath of God. Thank you, Father, for sending the Savior. And we worship you now in his name. Amen.